0: We've been on a series talking about the church and uh, and I spoke about the fact that the will of God is fulfilled not just through us as individuals, in fact, more through the church. And when we looked at Ephesians, we saw that Ephesians is not actually addressed to individuals but it's addressed to the church of God and an actual assembly of God that uh, was meeting and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because uh, for the next few months, we'll be looking at how we as a body of Christ work out the life of Jesus, the supernatural life of God, in, and, and see it fulfilled in the body. Okay, so I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses in, in Ephesians chapter 1. And while we are looking at it, uh, including Ephesians chapter 2, a few verses here, Uh, I will note four misunderstandings of the church, okay, four misunderstandings of the church that are probably robbing you of the fullness that God has for you, okay? If we can correct these four misunderstandings of the church, I believe your life and my life will change completely, okay? Some of these are kind of, oh, thank you, Ben. Some of these are pretty obvious, but uh, let's go on to it. Thank you, Ben. We'll read it from, uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 18, I think. Yes, we'll look at it from verse 18. Are you ready? Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. Yeah, we talk a lot about calling in our church here. What is God's call for us? And I'd like to do a little bit of tweaking to perhaps some of our unconscious uh, misconceptions of calling. Uh, What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Where is his inheritance? Is it in ourselves individually? No, it's in the... In the saints. Where is our inheritance? It's in the saints. If you think of our inheritance in your own self, me, myself, and I, you will actually miss it. Yeah? You'll miss it. What is inheritance in the saints? Verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us? Who? Towards me or towards us? Towards us, who believe. Plural. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Okay? which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. So is talking about how important, how powerful and how authoritative Christ is in subjecting all the demonic powers, all forces under his own feet. And gave him as head over all things to the to the church. Now what he's saying is, this all that power, all that authority that raised Jesus from the dead, that overcame all the powers of the enemy, all that power is harnessed, and it is and it's poured forth has its locality has its focus in the church. Isn't that amazing? Now we. As, uh, uh, as, as Westerners, tend to think of it like as an individual. It's all me. It's all me. And because of that, a lot of people, they are like these little kind of, kind of cells that are sort of just going all over the place. They're radicals, free radicals right now. All over the place, but never fulfilled. But actually, if we understand that actually God wants to fulfill all His great purposes through your life and in the church, then the church will have a different role. Um, And He put all things in subjection to His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. He's been given to the church as head, which is His body, His fullness of Him, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Yeah? So, the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. When Christ fills the church, then we, the church experiences not just individuals, but the whole life of Christ. You know, that you, Those of you who were here last week, I showed you this cap, right? And the thing about this cap is that the cap cannot look to itself to see what its calling is. The cap, by looking and examining its color, its shape, its texture, its uh, composition, cannot find in itself what it's calling is it can find what it's gifted for it can find what it's good for in some ways it can show it can it can discover how beautiful it is but it cannot know what its purpose is you can't tell just by looking at the cap what the cap is for you can't because you can't see the main thing the main thing about the cap is not the cap correct yeah the main thing about me is not me. The main thing about me is not how gifted I am, how clever I am, or how handsome I am, or how uh, um, how uh, talented I am. I cannot find my calling just by looking at the shape of me. And sometimes what happens is that uh, Christians do all these giftedness tests and all that, and those are useful because it can help us to understand ourselves. The Enneagram is one thing that I really really appreciate, yeah, appreciate to some extent. But I can't tell what my calling is, what my purpose in life is just by looking at myself. Because this cap, important though it is, is not important in and of itself. And so what I think is that sometimes as Christians, we look very, very deeply into ourselves and try to look at our strengths and our weaknesses and all that, and try to find God's purposes for us just by looking at ourselves. The only way in which I can know what, how, what my purpose is and what God can do is when I join myself with the rest of the pen. When that happens, the purpose of the cap and the meaning of this whole thing is completely different. You cannot even imagine it. Correct? Yes? All right, that was what we were talking about last week. We cannot imagine just by looking at this the whole purpose of its life, and that is to write beautiful, anointed things, to write miles and miles of words that could make a difference, that could actually clarify, elucidate, beautify, uh, touch, inspire people, clarify. Correct things. The cap, in and of itself, has a purpose, but it is the, not the purpose. The purpose, the cap has a sub purpose, shall we call it? A sub purpose. It's purposeful, but the purpose of the cap, which is to prevent ink from drying up, is not the purpose of the pen. Does that make sense? My purpose is limited. In life. No matter how super much a superman I think I am, my purpose is actually a sub purpose. If I join myself with the the place where God wants to move and, and fulfill his purpose, then I will have a great purpose. My sub purpose actually. Make sense? I may be a great steering wheel, and I may look perfectly round and everything. But if I'm divorced, if I'm set, cut off from the rest of the car, my my purpose is a subpurpose, and it will never be fulfilled. Okay. So what what Paul is saying is this: there is a misunderstanding, perhaps, that we may be having. Maybe maybe not to Paul, but my own surmising that comes from from this is, and it is that God's purpose is fulfilled through us in the church, okay? In the church. It's fulfilled by the church. And so, if you want to talk about calling, may I suggest to you that the Lord would say, my calling is for the church. Do you as an individual want to come along? Correct? Now, this is important because for many, many years, while I was young, especially when I was young, my 20s and 30s, I felt God speaking to me so closely and so powerfully that I could not help thinking that God has a great purpose for my life, and He did in fact, how I went how I lived my life was by thinking, if nobody else wants to follow God, if nobody else wants to do what God says, I'm just going to do it, and he's going to do great things through me and it doesn't matter what other people do as long as I'm doing it it's not. It, 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 it doesn't affect me. And I got involved in church planting, and I, was, I, I planted six churches besides this one, by the grace of God. And there was something wonderful about how God can work in someone who doesn't depend upon other people to be obeying God, but who decides they're going to, if you are the only one in the, in the world to do that, they will do it. I was, when I was young, that is how I functioned. I didn't need the church to be obedient to God. I'm just going to be obedient to God. And then I experienced something in the church, in one of the churches that I planted, and subsequently to many of the other churches that I was involved in church planting, that was different than anything else. The Lord brought us into prayer. And I began to find that when we as a church prayed together, one would put a thousand to flight, two would put ten thousand. I also found that in Matthew 18, something really real was happening. I read, you see, in Matthew chapter 18, that if we agree touching anything, the Lord will do it. I'd never seen that happen. It also said that when two or three are gathered in my midst, there am I in the midst of them. And then the Lord began to speak to me about what he could do through us as a church, and at that time we were a very small church, maybe 18, 19 of, of us, if we just agree and we are committed to his purposes. And I changed my position from thinking, I'm just going to obey God. If other people don't want to obey God, it's up to them. But God will bless, bless me. I began to encourage the church to pray. I began to encourage them to pray when they did not feel like it. I began to encourage them to pray together and to be one with one another and to sort out rubbings that would for sure happen because that's the only way unity can happen. It doesn't happen because we are nice. Nice is not unity. And God began to take our church through a period of what we call rubbing. The same way in the Old Testament when God was building the temple of Solomon, through the different rocks in the different qualities, God would not use the rocks to be joined together with nails or screws or any kind of pins. He would actually just rub the rocks together and there would sometimes often be sparks and then they would fit in exactly so that the stones in the temple would just fit. <laughs> exact fit. <laughs> through grinding and through blending together. Amen? And In that particular church, and I've seen that subsequently since then, when we prayed, the presence of God would come upon us in such a way that without doing the normal things like preaching or praying or laying on of hands, people would come and they will step into the doors. The moment they step their foot into into the church, they will be touched by the power of God. Some of them even fall. We would have... Had people who, who, were, who were ushers who had to be congregated at the doorways just so that they can pick up people who would fall down just as they fall into the, into the church. There was a church in Argentina in a place in a city called Bell in which they had prayed and brought to, had been brought into such unity that when people from the outside would step in, they would experience the same thing. In fact, in, the, in that church, there's a report about how th- that church did not have glass windows like we do. They were, just had, you know, kind of porticos, And people would, from outside, be able to look inside because the church did not, ha- the, their walls were filled with, you know, openings. And people from outside would see the miracles that were taking place in this church because they had come to such a, 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 a tremendous amount of unity. And, uh, and, and, and were great people in, were, were great in prayer that sometimes people would look into the into the church right look into the church and there's many instances in this church this in in, in Bell in Argentina in which people would be so curious they would look and their, and their heads would get closer and closer to that opening right. And people in the church will say, wait, look at this. Because they knew what was going to happen. The more they got closer and closer and closer, the, the moment their head got in, into, the, into that hole, in that, that, that archway, they would fall over under the power of God. And that would be so amazing. Things would happen. I remember that in my own church, when we had prayer, when we had prayer together, every evening uh, we would eat together Small group of us, about twenty of us, we would eat together. And one day we were praying for some. We were ministering to someone who was demon possessed. Okay, demon possessed, and had spirits in him. Lots of the, because he lived in the temple. He grew up in the temple, and he grew, and, and and his mother was a medium. Uh, all all kinds of things. He would he would he would come in, and we would be seated around this table tennis table, and we would have our food. And the moment he joined the circle, demons would manifest and we would cast out demons. <laughs> so sometimes we could not have our dinner until half an hour later after we had prayed for him. There is something about the presence of God in his church that is so much more powerful than the individual cat anointing that we can sometimes have. And I want to put it to you that what what Paul is saying when he says it's the church is that actually God wants to do something and I believe the church is the place in which God is going to do something in our lives. We're going to go more into it. Okay? Let's move on. Let's see what time it is. 11.16. Okay. Let's look in chapter 2. So the first... First thing has to do with the will of God. The will of God is not just in individuals, but in His church. Amen? Second point. Uh, we'll, go, we'll read it from verse... Um, well, let's look at it from verse 11 onwards, okay? Chapter 2 of Ephesians. We saw that the authority and purpose of God is in the church, right? Verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is the Jews. The uncircumcision were the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. Um, In those, according to the Jewish um, uh, perspective, there were only two races, those who are non-Jews and those who are Jews. The the uncircumcised and those who are Jews, the circumcised. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's speaking to the Ephesians who are mainly Gentiles, right? The uncircumcision, not Jews. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh, okay, in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances so that in himself, don't worry, I will explain this, in himself, it's such a mouthful, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God Mm -hmm. through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, so what he's saying is this. In the past, there is an inseparable gap between races. Not only between races, but between our who we were, who were born in the flesh, who we've become in the flesh. Circumcision, what marked Jewishness, uncircumcision revealed un-Jewishness, okay? And there was an enmity that was in some ways rooted in obedience to the law, which Gentiles did not, but Jews did. And so there was enmity between Jews and Gentiles, and in the Old Testament, the Jews had access to God in the temple gentiles did not but what paul is saying here is this because of what christ has has done and offered himself on the cross he broke down the dividing wall between the two so much so that the two can be one so that we are not we are not one based upon our similarities or our ethnicities or our backgrounds, or our knowledge, or our holiness even, or even by our own um, basic characteristics. He say it is made one because of Christ's death on the cross. What he did, Paul says, is that on his death, by his death on the cross, every reason, okay, every, everything within us that makes us unacceptable to God, disobedient to God, not able to be one with one another, was broken down in Christ. Now, that it's important for us to understand a certain aspect of that, that sometimes we miss out. It does not mean that because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can now merge our different ethnicities. Or we can share our own things. That's not what it primarily means. It doesn't mean that we are one because of the fact that God did something and so because of that, what, what Christ did on the cross makes us able to become one. No, he didn't say that. He said that there is, there is an enmity that is endemic in us. It is inside us. It works in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in, in our nature. It works in our, in, in our human nature. And it causes us to never be able to obey God, never be able to become one, never be able to, 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 to sacrifice our uniqueness or our, our individualities, our identities for the other. What he's saying is this, it doesn't come because we, don't, we are not one because we merge and we now share and share alike and we respect each other's boundaries or respect each other's particularities. He says, no. The reason why we are one in Christ is because in Christ, we died. The only way in which we could be one is not by merging and appreciating each other's cultures, but by the fact that on, in Christ, God ripped apart Christ's body. He ripped apart in himself. That's why uh, Ephesians chapter two says, "In himself, in himself, the enmity that's inside us—that's because of our willfulness, our own sinful sin nature—was ripped apart in Christ." That does mean now. Um, that which doesn't mean that. We can now, because we are kind of big-hearted with one another and we are all pretty enlightened, we can now become one. No, it means this. Something more radical had to be happened. What had to happen was that Christ had to die on behalf of our enmity. He has to die because of the very deep-set sinfulness of our nature, of our identity, our race, our ethnicity, our, our, the way we were. That's just the way we were. That we cannot become one just because we got big-hearted with one another or we become much more um, 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 sophisticated in our thinking. All that is good. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. But there is, that is not the radical thing that happened. What happened, what Paul is saying is this. In himself, in himself, Christ experienced every war, every battle, every hatred, every kind of, injustice, every oppression, every kind of thing that has happened in the whole of human race, past, present, future, and in himself, it ripped him apart. So that the church of Jesus Christ is a a new race. It becomes a, a whole new humanity. NASB calls it, One New Man. But in uh, in, in NRSV it says, one new humanity. What he's saying is this, we don't have two humanities and different kinds of of, of particularities joining together and merging together. We have a complete laying aside of all that. And because of Christ's work on the cross, the the curtain of the temple into the Holy of Holies was rent into two. But Christ was rent into two. What's predicated upon unity in the church is not similarity, not anything that is in our flesh, not in our color, not in our education, not in the way we speak, not in our accents, not in our um, 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 histories, not in our experiences, but in Christ, something much more radical took place, much more precious much more precious than even the sacrifice that I or you can make for other people. Christ actually broke the the spirit of enmity, the spirit of enmity that was there from the foundations of of culture and broke it in Himself. Only the death of a God can cause transformation like that. So that it is not a small, it's not a, a big thing for me to live the rest of my life never really with my own people. That's why you have missionaries. That's why you have people who give up their own culture, their own comfortability, their own people. And say to other people, your people will be my people. Because of that, of what Christ has done. Because I have given up. My old identity, amen? Does that mean that we are no longer, I'm no longer Chinese? No, I'm very Chinese. I like noodles and I will always like noodles. Don't take away my noodles. But that's not my identity. Every day in the church, I'm behoved to set that aside. Amen? I remember I asked the Lord, a few years ago, actually, not that long ago. Why can't I be with my own people? Why? Why can't I just do that? Why can't I have somebody to speak Malay with? Why can't I have somebody in which I can tell the jokes that I tell? I have to tell all these higher standard jokes, American jokes. My kids don't like my jokes, they think they're so stupid, they're so silly but I know a, a special people who when I joke, they will laugh. They're called Malaysians. Why do I have to look at the Olympics and keep cheering for America? I anyway, mean, congratulations America, you did really well, you beat China. Why do I have to always look at the, at the, at the Olympic news and look to that small subset called Malaysia. Up to yesterday, we had one bronze in Badminton. Then last, then this morning, I found out that we won a silver in cycling. Oh. Why? I asked God, why does it have to be that I have to always be on the fringes? In news, I always look for fringe news, news that nobody wants. right? I'm not into basketball, I'm not into football, I'm not into baseball. I try to, my kids are, but not me. I have to look at soccer. And whoever heard of West Ham United? Why does it have to be that I'm always with someone else's culture and all that? And the Lord said, because of this, and He turned me to this, this, this possible, that I in myself, in myself, I paid the price, I foot the bill, I... I um, I, uh, at the the cost of my own life, was ripped apart so that the the barrier or the dividing wall would be abolished. It says it was abolished in His flesh. That is the enmity. And I want to put it to you that God calls us all as missionaries. And as, as such, I want to call you to that life. That Jesus calls you and me to a life in which I'm not saying you don't recognize earthly and natural and real particularities of our identity. What I'm saying is this, be a missionary for Jesus. Amen? That is what the church is. It cannot be the church. We cannot be the church in the fullest sense of the word. Let's move on. Verse 12, remember... Oh, sorry. Let's move on to verse. Oh, this is so good. I'm going to read it again. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in the ordinances, so that in himself... In himself, he might make the two into one new man or one new humanity, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, verse 18, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Okay? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay. Let's look at verse verse 19. It says, and this will be the third point, the third misunderstanding. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What does it mean? It means this. When... In the Old Testament, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, became proselytes, okay? This is Old Testament, New Testament. They were allowed to be in a special place in the temple and then later when the temple was destroyed, they were, and, and, and the Jews were all over the place, there would be Gentiles who would be um, uh, interested in the Jewish religion and they would be on the outside, yeah so you have the court of the Gentiles, you have these special places in which Gentiles could, if they are proselytes, they want to become like Jews, can take on the Jewish uh, custom and, and and read torah and uh, and actually follow the God yahweh they wouldn 't be able to do that, but because they were aliens and they were uh, Gentiles and foreigners, they would be. The audience. They couldn't participate. They would be the audience. Right? And what Paul was saying is this, you are no longer audience anymore in a church. You are no longer passive listeners to the great teaching that the rabbi or whatever would would give. You are no longer passive watchers or observers of the sacrifices being made on behalf of the Jews you are no longer on the outside. You are no longer a passive audience. You are a participant. In fact, he calls it, you are a citizen. Yeah? Now, I understand citizenship here. It's a whole mass of people becoming citizens. I'm not a citizen. I'm a citizen of Malaysia. Uh, but I understand this. And in the Greek context, the word for citizen means an active participant in decisions that are being made. You are an active participation, participant. You have buy-in and you have a stake in the nature of the police or the city. What he, Paul is saying is this. You are now no longer as church an audience. We don't have audience anymore. We only have citizens. Does that make sense? <laughs> I know you're watching me almost trip over that. <laughs> the third misunderstanding that we have is that that church involves those who are up here and those who are down here as an audience and participant. That is a misunderstanding of church. Okay? First Peter tells us that we are now a royal priesthood. That means we, just as much as anyone here, anyone here, have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wants to do things through each one of us in the church you are no longer a recipient of ministry you are a minister now you are a citizen amen that should get us all excited that means oh it also it also says you're not only fellow citizens but with the saints but you are also also of God's household so now you have a picture of church, not as a, like a theater. This looks like a theater. Don't you think? It looks like a lecture hall or a or theater. I mean, whatever form you take, whether it's Greek revival or whatever other kind of thing, it's still, it's, it's, it's like an audience, right? And Paul says, that's not the way church is, actually. It's not supposed to be arranged that way. The church is a household. It's a household. It's not a lecture hall. It's not a theater where you get to see things happening and somebody just going and doing his his acrobatics up here. It is actually a household, which means that as a household, we are supposed to participate in making food, right? In making things and doing things. Let me give you an example. You are looking at me funny. When I joined my church that I became a member of for 17 years, and then full time, and got involved in church planting. Um, I was a visitor, and uh, I was in college, and that church was was quite poor. There were, but it was a very small and close knit church. It was just a pioneering church in uh, in KL. And what was great about that church is that after service you know, we university students, college students, right, irresponsible like anything, thinking the world owes us everything, would stay back and they would invite us for lunch after a long two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour service. After that, we were so hungry, they would say, yes, we want lunch. And so this church would serve us lunch. And most of the time for lunch, we would have rice, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of veggies, and water, Right? I got to admit it, I was used to more. I was used to sumptuous, sumptuous noodles. But this church had a small meal. After that meal, we would go out and have our lunch. But we had to be polite to them. And every day, every Sunday when we went, we would have the same thing. Chicken rice, chicken rice. Chicken rice. So, my friends and I made fun of that church and and said, "Chicken rice, okay." Made fifteen different uh, different different variations. Chicken rice. Then I became a member of the church. And I lived in the house that the church was was uh, was, uh, was, uh, was 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 housed. And when I became a member of the church, suddenly my portion got smaller. My already small portion became even smaller than I was used to. And then I found out that all this while, my friends and I that had come to church were actually having an extra portion that the members of the church, members of that household, were actually giving to us as hospitality. The church was very poor because it just it started with very, very poor people. And what the church had been doing as a household, only the householders would do that, would be to sacrifice one-third of their meat portion, one-third of their rice portion, and one-third of their veg, vegetables for the newcomers. Now, I brought a lot of people into that church. In fact, because of, the, of, my, of my coming to church, the church numbers doubled. And then after that, they tripled. All these university students who were completely irresponsible, completely spoiled, educated, but not really appreciative of anything. But to the extent that we we had been given hospitality, we appreciated the hospitality. When I joined the church, things changed. They didn't get mean. It just meant that I was the one who was separating one third out to the newcomers who were coming. Does that make sense? because you we were a household. But when I became a member of the church, then I would cook too. And I would wake up, have to wake up early, go to the market, do all these kinds of things, four o'clock in the morning, and cook for these ones who are coming. That was hospitality for us. Does that make sense? Okay. But when I became a householder, I a household, I experienced the poverty that the church had. Yeah. It was so poor, they were so poor that, I felt guilty when I went out with my friends for a bottle of Coke because the others would not be able to do that. Yeah? How many of you know what Milo is? Milo, M-I-L-O. Ha! Huh. Okay, Milo, okay. Milo is like a, like a hot chocolate drink but it's kind of a little bit thinner. And I was used in my family growing up to have like three, four heap spoons of Milo in my, in my, in my milk and then we'll drink it At night, as a treat, after we finished all our ministry and all our training, they will let us have Milo. And so the first thing I did was that, oh, great, I grabbed the Milo and I. And they allowed me to have one level spoon of Milo in this big glass. Lots of water, very little Milo. I looked at it, and guess what? I was touched. I was touched. I was convicted. I was so convicted of my own selfishness and my own, my own sort of what, whatever um, immaturity it was that I had. And I got involved in the faith challenge of believing God for more money for our hospitality. I was not being given hospitality anymore. I was part of the hospitality. But I was, more importantly, part of the household. And so as part of the household, they would tell me all the financial challenges they had. And I got involved in praying every day, every day at breakfast, um, which was a very small breakfast, praying for enough money to be able to supply the needs and the hospitality for all the guests that would come. It would not be long before the church almost exploded in numbers because of the new people that were coming. But I I still remember those days in which we had this household and we became really, really close we quarreled a lot. We fought a lot. But we became really, really close. We could actually intuitively know what the other brother or sister was going to be doing. And we worked just like that. Just like that. We were like bricks in the in the temple of war that just fit in. <laughs> we would sometimes be able to communicate telepathically. I mean, by the Holy Spirit. I mean, not telepathically. By the Holy Spirit. Because of the way in which we prayed. And when we began to pray together, things would happen in a very deep and very powerful way. When we worshipped, people would come into our, 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 our church and we would worship and they would feel the, the weight of that, of that, the depth of suffering that different people have been going through and God's, God's power. So I want to put it to you that the third misunderstanding that we often have as a church, uh, as in, in church, is the fact that the church is, we think, an audience rather than a household. And finally, I want to go get to the main point, and now we will begin the sermon. (laughs) Point four. Let's move on. Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What is it saying? It is saying that the church is not a building, right? It's not a building in which the Holy Spirit is rolling around somewhere in there. It is not saying, Paul is not saying that we are being built into a building and the Holy Spirit is moving and so we are just like a passive casing for the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, that we, Christ being filling us in His fullness filling us, we are being built together. We're being built together. It's not the mortar and bricks and all that. It is actually lives, personalities, talents, gifts, and all that being built together. We're being built together, and the Holy Spirit is here in real time. That means He's doing something now, now itself. While you and I, are, I'm up here and you are down there, Holy Spirit is doing something. I'm being built. So it's present tense. It's not timeless only, but it is timely. We are in a Holy Spirit moment. Whenever we're in church, we're not in a static thing that's out there that's like a, like a group of people. You can list the names of people. That is the church and the Holy Spirit is rolling around there. No, we are an event that 's taking place. The Holy Spirit is at work now, even as you are sitting there, and i 'm standing up here. Holy Spirit is present here, and we are in a real time Holy Spirit moment. The church is not a, 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 it 's it's not a, um, a list of things of people, of finances, of resources that you can put on a paper and say, this is the church. The church is a, almost a verb. Holy Spirit is working. Does that make sense? That, now, here's the misunderstanding. We think of the truths as timeless truths, right? God is eternal. God is good. God is loving. The world is made by God. We know all that. We know all these timeless truths. God is faithful. He, is, he promises. We can think of truths as timeless. And as a result of that... We can sometimes think of religion as a list of things that we believe in that are timeless. Timeless principles, timeless doctrines. The doctrine of God's goodness, for example. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine, doctrine of, uh, of, 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 of the cross, of Christ's work of the cross. If, you, if that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. Okay? It'll happen. It'll, it'll come. We can sometimes think of, these, of, the, of of religion as the belief in timeless truths. Right? Matter, physical, realities, all these timeless truths. I want to put it to you, that is a lousy way of looking at church. The church is not only timeless, God is not only timeless, but He's also timely. He's timely. What does it mean by timely? He's doing something, and He wants us to be in time with Him. If God gives you a word, you must speak it out. In real time. If you don't, God is working in real time. You can miss it. I remember one time when I was, um, I had, I was a young minister, and uh, I was wanting to know how to move in the gifts of the Spirit. And I remember I was praying for this meeting, and I prayed a long time, and as I prayed. The Lord gave me some revelations. Then we went into the meeting. It was worship time. And during the worship, I had an impression. An impression was that God wanted to heal some somebody's tongue. Tongue. Now if it's hip, lungs, all that, it's much easier to say because it's not so specific, right? But to say God wants to heal someone's tongue, I could not for the life of me see anybody with a tongue problem. And the Lord said, tongue. How did I know it was the Lord? I didn't. I just guessed that it was. But He's teaching me. Does that make sense? So I kept quiet because it didn't make make any sense, right? And after that worship, we all debrief and says like, what what spoke to you? What was God doing and all that? And somebody got up, a young guy said, I had pain in my tongue. I have a growth in my tongue. And I was hoping that somebody would speak it out. Immediately I said, I got that. Let's pray. I prayed for him, he wasn't healed. I missed. I missed. Later on, other people prayed and he got healed. So God loves him too. It didn't make him suffer on account of my own untimeliness. Does that make sense? What I want to say is this. The Holy Spirit is present in the church, but the Holy Spirit works in real time and He calls us to work with Him, work with Him, be sensitive to Him. When? Not when the service is over, now, even now. Does that make sense? We are in a Holy Spirit moment. We are in a living moment. That's why First Peter says that um, uh, we are living stones. So let's have a look at this. Verse 20, says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole be- building, being fitted together, okay, being fitted together, present continuous tense. Being fitted, fitted together is growing. Is growing. He didn't say it grows or it grew or it will grow. It says is growing. That means at this particular moment, building is growing. A holy temple in whom you are being built. Being built. That means something is happening now. Together in a, as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, what is God building? He's building a dwelling. What does it mean that dwelling? It doesn't mean God finds an address and and he finds, okay, I'm going to live here. I'm going to just live here, not do anything. I'll just roll around in this building. Dwelling means do what he wants to do. If I dwell in my house, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I wear anything I want in the house. I eat whatever I want. I walk anywhere. I can slouch. I can do anything I want to do. I want to. If I want to, I want to work on the garden. I can work on the garden. If I want to work on the on the bathroom, I can do whatever. whatever. I'm active in my house and I rest in my house. I do anything that I want to do in the house. When it says that we are being built into a dwelling place of God, we are built being built together, and God is working in us so that He can do whatever He wants to do, and manifest Himself in this earth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? He wants to build something in us that every single one of us is not an audience, but is a player in real time. And it's happening now. Every time you come to church, come on time. Okay? Come on time. Because if you don't come on time, you may miss some things. So we need to be timely with God. Right? God is not only timeless. Timeless. So what we do as Christians is that we don't take messages. I know with Zoom and all that, it's very easy for us to do that. First of all, we don't attend. That may not be our fault. In fact, most probably it's not. Secondly, but we go for Zoom. And then sometimes we can't make it for Zoom. We'll make it for Facebook because it's recorded. And what happens is that our idea of a timeless God, a timeless truth that can be encapsulated and stored for a while and used whenever I want to use it because it's timeless, is a wrong concept of Christianity. Church is a series of moments in which the Holy Spirit is moving and God is wanting to do something. Last week, there was a word of knowledge for somebody who had a problem in their stomach, right? And different things. Do you know that That person came up and God delivered her and someone brought her up. On time. If if she had been brought up later, we would have missed it. Does that make sense? If you don't come, and don't take this as a rebuke, take it as a gentle encouragement, okay? If you don't come to church on time, worship gets a bit delayed. Not because we start worship late, but because of the fact that God wants to do things with the people who are going to be coming to church. Does that make sense? He wants to work in real time. If, for example, God wants to work during the worship time and God has words for for different people and you don't participate and the worship has to carry on and drag on waiting for something to happen, you know what's going to happen? The worship will go longer. A little bit longer. Does that make sense? Because God is giving an opportunity for somebody to share, right? Right? I think that's what happened last week. And if you think of the church as just timeless things that are taking place which you can encapsulate in a box and then go home and think about it and not know that God is present and if you respond to Him at the right time, He's going to do great things. You could actually miss it. If you don't see it that way, then what's going to happen is church is always going to be out of time. God is doing something here and there's lots of treasure that is, that's available to us, but we take it and we, you know, it's just like you take food home, you don't, don't eat in the restaurant, you put it in the fridge and it's all cold. You bring it out, it's the food, but it's cold, it's not quite the same. Does that make sense? God is making us, He's, we are being built. We are being built. Amen? Now, this was just the introduction to my message my real message was supposed to be in Acts 1. Okay, so I'm gonna just share one little point before we, we close because we have to close before twelve. Alright? Can you quickly turn with me to Acts chapter one? And I will just introduce the point. Acts, Acts chapter one. In Acts, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus had brought the disciples together. And He said to them, Receive the Holy Ghost. And what did He do? He breathed on them. Did they receive the Holy Ghost? The Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes, they received the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He says, Verse 7, He said, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. What he was saying is this. Yes, I've given you the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have it forever. You have Him forever. He is eternally with you. But then there is a real time, timely moment that is you have to wait upon. Just because you've been given the Holy Spirit does not mean... You are outside of the process by which the Holy Spirit will fill you and empower you and come upon you. Does that make sense? It is true that the Lord has given us His Spirit, but there are t- timely things, processes by which God actually calls us to experience what He has already given to us in the fullness. And so He says, The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the utmost parts of the earth or the remotest parts of the earth. And so he says to them, this hasn't happened yet. Even though you have the eternal spirit, I've been given in in, in in a timeless way the Holy Spirit. But now in real time, I want you to prepare for yourself so that the Holy Spirit has you. Okay? So they go... And this is the beginning of the church. And look at the church, how it is, right? Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey away. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, and all the rest of them. And with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What was happening? Church was happening. What was church doing? Church was not just relying on the timeless words of Jesus in which they were reminding themselves and teaching themselves of that. They were saying, something is happening and it hasn't, brought, has, hasn't been brought into fruition yet. We have the Holy Spirit. That means we have permission. But we haven't gone through the process in real time of receiving the, the manifestation of God's power. Does that make sense? Did they have the Holy Spirit? Yes, they had the Holy Spirit. But they had not received the power. And so church to them was, what were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer together. Whatever happens next, whatever the agenda and all that, whatever the constitution of church, we don't know what's happening. What they knew was this, we're supposed to do this. Church is full of, we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to do this. And what was happening is that they were they decided that they were going to devote themselves to prayer, and they were praying in the upper room for about 50 days. Yeah, about 50 days. And so we see this. They were one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with and his brothers. And that's what they did. They just devoted themselves to prayer. They're just praying together. I want to put it to you that church is much more dynamic than all the Static things that we have, the pews and all that, schedules and all that. All these things are real. But what's dynamic is the Holy Spirit He's working. He's speaking. He's summoning us. He's calling us. I want you to experience the riches of what I have for you. I will change you. I will change you. So the Holy Spirit summons these people. You can have no, no building, you can have no communion, you can have no guitars, you can have no, 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 no worship instruments, you have none of this. But what you have is the Holy Spirit summoning. The essence of church is the Holy Spirit summons to us to devote ourselves to Him so that He can tell us what He has for us. Amen? It says, at this time, during that time, Peter stood up. And then he started working. And Peter said, somebody betrayed us and it's caused a deep wound and we can't go any further unless God touches that wound. They didn't always do that when they went to prayer. That wasn't an order of service. It was the Holy Spirit leading them. The Holy Spirit, as he moves them, he comes to the place and he says, there's a healing that needs to happen. Stop now. We're going to do something. The church is a group of people, a motley crew of travelers following the Holy Spirit and saying, what do you want to do next? Amen? I want to invite you to join us for daily prayer. Join us for daily prayer because if you are part of this, you will be part of the dynamic pulse of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Without that, you have many things in church, but I'm not sure that all of those things are the dynamic pulse. If you can zoom on, that would be great. But I want to leave this with you with, as we close that the church is a, is a dynamic living moment. It's a living moment of the Holy Spirit. And it's in time. Let us pray. 12 o'clock, we need to pick up our children just in case because we have to be timely. (laughs) But I'd like us to bow our heads in prayer. Yes, if you do need to pick up your children, feel free to um, do so right now. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for such a wonderful, beautiful calling to be part of something that you're creating and you have created. We thank you right now that you are filling us with the Holy Spirit. During worship today, the Lord is just showing me our holy hands that we were raising up. And so maybe right now we can just lift them up to you, Lord. We say, God, we thank you. You want to fill these physical hands, God, that we are your hands, in the world and in the church right now, we pray that you would anoint our hands for healing as we touch our brothers and sisters and our children and as we touch the world right now. Amen. Amen. Praise you, God. Holy Spirit, we invite you even now to make us present to what you're doing in the name of Jesus. We welcome the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to just go ahead and welcome him. Perhaps you have been thinking about this proceeding as just one thing after another. But I wonder whether we can even now open ourselves to the fact that there's something more important than all the activities that have been going on in this meeting, in this service. The Holy Spirit is here. I want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to have the rule and the reign over your life I want to invite you to come into this amazing spiritual moving in which God knows you and me and he's moving to do amazing and wonderful things in your life and my life thank you Lord that you have made us new and so I invite you to enter in in a new way to BCF. We commit ourselves into your hands. In your own name we pray. Amen.